Hello and welcome to the Talkspot. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And if you're a TF member, you would have heard about the new logo competition for TF. Did you put an entry in, Tim? No, my artistic skills are no good. I didn't put an entry in. But I'll be going over there and voting, maybe later today. The website's recently had a revamp, so it's worth going there and having a look. And if you're not a member, you should sign up to be a member of TF. It's got a great members area on the website where you can link in with hundreds of forensic toxicologists from all around the world. Yep, you can also get free access to the Journal of Analytical Toxicology as well as a TF Bulletin, which has always got interesting stories about tox in it. And uh, spoiler, Pete, we're going to be releasing a bonus episode sometime soon about the next TF Bulletin. That's right. Toxpod and the TF editors are working together to produce a, an episode before the Bulletin comes out every couple of months, and uh, we'll be talking about what's in it and what's coming up. So we'll look ahead to that, but today we're going to do a 5 in 30 episode couple of different ones in there this time, Tim. Yeah, well, toxicology is a broad field. I think there's room for a lot of different sub-disciplines within toxicology. Yeah, our interests always overlap with other fields, so... Yeah, for sure. Let's go there for a bit. So what's up first? Okay, the first paper we're looking at is called The Effects of High-Potency Cannabis on Psychomotor Performance in Frequent Cannabis Users by Caroli et al. That's published in Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. So with the legalisation of cannabis in many places and including in the US where this paper is based, there has been noticed an increase in the amount of cannabis found in drivers. I guess there's always been a concern about how you're going to, I mean, cannabis is not like alcohol. You can just test alcohol using a breathalyzer device and that sort of thing. And in America, they also have a lot of driver impairment studies. Yeah. Unlike some other jurisdictions in the world, which have per se laws where you're not even allowed to have you know, a certain level of cannabis in your blood or your oral fluid or whatever the matrix is they're testing. If you've got that amount, you're basically guilty of driving under the influence of cannabis. But in the USA, it's a little different. A lot of the states in the US seem to have a reliance also on assessing the impairment of the person, which makes sense in a way. There's sort of pros and cons both ways with these laws. And so they tend to have these drug recognition experts who have formal training to try and work out whether someone's impaired by a particular drug, including cannabis. This paper is looking at possible replacement in some ways to assessment of someone's impairment by use of an app instead of the standard field sobriety testing that goes on, talking about the possibility of using an app to assess someone's impairment. I guess there's an argument to make here about objectivity. If you're using technology to assess someone's impairment, maybe it's not prone to you know mistakes or bias or anything like that as a human could be. But of course, technology is never perfect as well. Yeah, that's right. What if you've got an old phone like I've got and it's a bit, <laughs> a bit slow in its reaction times? You've probably got an iPhone 13, have you, Tim? Yeah. I've got a Nokia 6510. No, not quite. So to, to assess this app, or just to give an example, really, I think that's the purpose of the paper, to give an example of how this app could be possibly used and how it applies to cannabis. They've taken two sets of cannabis users and assessed their psychomotor impairment before and after taking cannabis at various time points. So this app is called Druid, which... Uh what does that stand for, Pete? Uh, driving under the influence of drugs. But they do say in in the paper that it's not necessarily suitable for that purpose anyway because the app's based on your individual performance. So you have to do a baseline study so when you're not impaired and compare that to when you are impaired. So if you pull someone over for driving, you can't necessarily have a baseline for them. Yeah, so this is sort of an exploratory study to see how the app 
works under these conditions. But the conditions that they've got in the paper here, it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to replicate them on the roadside. Yeah, it mightn't be so bad for worksite testing, perhaps. The test only takes about three minutes. So they found some cannabis users and they tested them for other drugs to make sure they weren't affected by those, just to make sure that they're only looking at cannabis here. And they tested with the app prior to and then immediately after and then one hour after consumption of cannabis. And there actually, there were a couple of different types of ingestion, weren't there? One was mainly the flour, I think, and then one was more the, the concentrate. concentrate. Yeah. yeah. There's a second part of the study too where they – so one group was based in Colorado where they just did three-point time points. So they did a, a before cannabis, I think just after cannabis and an hour after cannabis and compared those results. And the second – group of people was in a different state, Washington. And the Washington study, they took more time points. So they took uh, one just prior to uh, consuming the cannabis, just after they consumed the cannabis, and half-hour time points after that, up to 150 minutes. Interestingly, the, the results on the app actually got better after 150 minutes than what they started. So but I, think, <laughs> I think that's just a statistical thing. Have you downloaded the app, Pete? Yeah, I've got it. I had to go on the weekend. But you really have to read the instructions, otherwise you get really bad results. <laughs> <laughs> Tap the right screen. You want to have a go at it? Yeah, load it up. Let's have a try. Okay. So the app's got a battery of four tests, so that where they test your reaction time and decision making, reaction time and time estimation, uh, motion tracking, and also eyes open balance. So a few of the same things that they might do in a field sobriety test, I mm. guess is what they're aiming at. So the app's open, and uh, just got to press start. Here we go. First test called tap the circles. So you, uh, circles and squares briefly appear on the screen. When you see a circle, tap it. When you see a square, tap the white oval. So this is a decision-making and reaction time aspect. It might even be good to get an expert on the podcast one time, Pete, to talk about the effects of cannabis on driving. Shh. Let me concentrate. So this, uh, the next assessment is uh, to estimate 30 seconds, which must be a measure of an impairment too. You never okay. Yeah, I'm not sure how I'd go with that. Okay, press start. So uh, when you see a circle, tap where you saw it, but at the same time, you've got to estimate 30 seconds. And there has been some debate over whether cannabis impairs driving at all, but I think the consensus that it's emerging now is that it definitely does impair driving in some respects, maybe not in every respect, but it's those complex tasks where you have to do multiple things at once or something unexpected happens those kind of things is where cannabis really seems to have an effect on driving performance. I'm now going to do balancing on my left foot, so left hand, left foot in the air. So this is obviously measuring my side-to-side -side sway and things like that and how steady I am. You can swap over to the right hand and right foot to see if that side of my body is impaired. And so that's it. That's the test over. Then it's You're done. Well, that didn't take long. No, pretty quick. And my performance was fair, so I'm slightly above my baseline. I think it's because I'm nervous. Okay. Yeah. And considering I tapped the wrong squares and circles there for a while <laughs> and uh, forgot to count to 30 seconds while I was tapping the circles. So then uh, presumably if you were to smoke some cannabis, you would score badly on some score, of those. Yeah, so the score tests. goes up the more impaired you are. So um, we're not going to be smoking any cannabis. And it gives you a graph afterwards to see where you're at. And it looks like I'm about average about where my baseline is. So that's good. So this was just an exploratory study, but it's interesting because it highlights where things may be going, the use of technology and apps and things to assess some of these things that have previously been assessed by humans or just ignored because they're way too complicated. You know, these per se laws are basically because it's really hard to say whether someone's impaired or not, but maybe technology can help us. They did notice that there were some 
influences by age and sex. Or at the age seemed to be very clear. Older people seemed to do less well when they were impaired by cannabis. Yeah, so it was a big effect on age. Yeah. And they didn't have a placebo group or anything here who didn't smoke cannabis and then did it again later on. But Yeah, I think it's um, just an exploratory study to see where it goes. They have done a previous study where they looked at alcohol as well. I had a quick look at that paper and it looked like that the they measured the blood alcohol concentration with the breathalyzer at the same time, but there was, wasn't a real linear relationship between your impairment score and the BAC, but it definitely indicated there was more impairment the more alcohol you had. So I guess it's working. Makes sense, yeah. Okay, the next one's pretty interesting. It's titled Metabolism of Synthetic Cathinones Through the Zebrafish Water Tank Model, a Promising Tool for Forensic Toxicology Laboratories. That's by Prado et al., and it's in Forensic Toxicology. So we've mentioned before on the podcast about the various ways that you can try and identify metabolites of drugs. And I guess NPS are a main focus. Sometimes if you're testing urine, you might only find the metabolites. So it's really important if you're screening for these things to know what the metabolites are. And unlike pharmaceuticals where they've been extensively tested in the laboratory and there's probably metabolites available, NPS don't have any available metabolites commercially. So it can be a useful way to obtain sort of pseudo drug standards. So you can use things like human liver microsomes or nematodes. And this is an animal model, and it's using zebrafish. Yeah, zebradania. I used to have some of them in the fish tank at home, but Did you? I never gave them drugs. <laughs> well, I imagine walking into a lab with tanks full of zebrafish is much more appealing than walking into a lab with tanks full of nematodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be better. Well, you'd expect a zebrafish and a human to have quite different metabolisms, right? But there's apparently some similarities in the enzymes. They don't have all of the same enzymes that we do, and there are some that are, do a similar job. So the metabolites you find through the zebrafish model may or may not be the same as in humans, but there's a good chance that they will be. Yeah, and the results show that they are pretty similar in the, for one of the drugs, at least. And using these kind of models, it's a good way to find out what potential metabolites are of these compounds, but it's also a good way to produce the metabolites for addition to your library. You, If you can concentrate some of these things and run them on your instrument, now you've got retention time and a mass spectra. So how do they do it? It doesn't look like a very complicated setup, to be honest. No, it looks very simple. So they have like a few tanks, one with no fish, where they add the cathinones to, and that's just kind of a baseline to see if the cathinones are doing anything in the water on its own. You presume they wouldn't be doing a lot, although some of them are a bit unstable. And then one with fish, but no cathinones added. And then they had one with eight fish in the tank, and they put a drug in there and they had one of those tanks for each drug. And you might wonder how strong the drug is in there. And it was actually reasonably high. I think it was 500 nanograms per mil. I thought that was a reasonable high concentration, but that's great if the fish can survive that without any ill effects. Apparently the fish didn't behave oddly during the experiment. <laughs> and then they dealt with them afterwards according to ethical protocols. I'm not sure what that means. Mm. That's code for something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, like to, don't want to explore that too much further. And then they collected water at various time periods, up to eight hours. So this is why it's, it's just a really easy model because you've got a tank of water and you're just taking a little bit out. And how clean is water? I mean, it's just going yeah. to have a bit of fish poo in it. And... Yeah, I had fish once and their tank wasn't always that clean, to be honest. But I presume these are keeping their tanks very clean. Yeah, it's only a little 200 mil rectangular tank, I think. Yeah. Easy, so. They're only putting them in there for a short time, so it's not going to be green by the time they've finished. So they did that for a bunch of different cathinones, but then they did another experiment for one drug, which was N-ethylpentylone, where they left it for a few days until the metabolite concentration got quite high. 
and then they concentrated that whole tank of water and basically they're trying to get some of the N-ethylpentylone metabolites by doing that. So they're, they're looking at it from these two different angles. Yeah, so they're producing it in useful quantities so that they can hand it on to other laboratories, which is a great idea. And then so when they get this water, they hydrolyze it because obviously there could be phase two metabolites there. And then they extracted by SPE, run on an LCMS, which they were using an Orbitrap in this case. And they found a number of phase one metabolites, which appear to be through similar pathways to what happens in human. I mean, we know a fair bit about what happens to cathinones in humans. One of the common pathways is reduction of the ketone. And then you get things like dealkylation, hydroxylation, dehydrogenation. And they found all of these different things happening in the zebrafish as well. So they looked at metabolism of five different drugs, including N-ethylpentylone, ethylone, methylone, alpha-PVP, and 4-CDC, all cathinones. Not all of these drugs have been studied in great depth before for metabolites, and so not all of, they didn't have very many human metabolites to compare against. I think 4-CDC in particular hasn't been studied very much. I think N-ethylpentylone, I know there's been studies of that in you know human liver microsomes, but 4-CDC, they, they did actually identify some new metabolites, which presumably are in humans as well. And they compared the alpha-PVP metabolites to what's been found before in human urine and in vitro liver microsomes, I assume. It didn't correlate too badly. So for the part where they were trying to get a large amount of these metabolites, they actually had 20 of these little tanks which they concentrated up using solid phase extraction. And I guess the, the product you get out of that would be a large mixture of the parent plus all these metabolites but at least it gives you a chance to inject it into your instrument and get MRM set up and all that sort of stuff. So you might not have an authentic standard, but you've got like a marker that can be helpful in screening. Yeah. And they did say that they distribute it to various um, law enforcement laboratories around the place. It's great. I love this kind of sharing of standards. That's what we need more of because it's so expensive to buy standards and also some standards you just can't get, like these metabolites that they're finding here. Some of these were novel ones, so no one's selling these things. And it doesn't have to be authenticated uh, material for the purposes of just screening. You can then, if you do detect it, then at that stage you might want to get some authenticated metabolite in order to confirm it. Yeah, that's right. I think probably with the amount of NPS that are coming out and the amount of NPS metabolites also that we need to look for, probably everyone who's doing you know, broad screening using a QTOF or GCMS or something like that is going to need to have some compounds in their library which are just presumptive where they... They don't have a, a reference standard, but it's based on a peak that they found in a case or it's based on something like this where you've got it from someone who can't actually purify it and certify it. But at least you can screen for it then. Because if you spent hundreds of dollars on a metabolite, it may not ever have a case that even contains that NPS. So you might have just wasted your money. Okay. So the next paper is titled Time Dependent Changes in THC Concentrations in Deceased Persons. And that's by Chu et al. It's in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology. So another THC paper, Pete, but obviously coming at it from a very different angle to the other one we mentioned before with the app. In this paper, they look at THC in post-mortem samples and some anti-mortem samples, and there's two main parts. So part A is about different sampling sites within the same bodies, or they do also compare across different people. Well, of course, we know that different drugs can be different in concentration depending on the site. There's been hundreds and hundreds of papers about various drugs and what levels they are in different parts of the body after death. Often people try and determine whether there's a drug has significant post-mortem redistribution potential by measuring the concentration of a drug in the central blood, so the cardiac blood, compared to peripheral blood, so like the, the femoral artery. 
So if there's a large concentration difference, then there's a good chance that the drug concentration in ephemeral blood may increase over time or it may not represent what it was at the time of death. And these sort of studies have been done before. Of course, there's other papers around that talk about it. And overall, people have often said that there's little potential for postmortem redistribution for THC because they've more or less found that the concentration in central and peripheral bloods was sort of similar. But even when you look at those studies, you have a look at the actual numbers they get. Some of the numbers might say, oh, there was little potential for postmortem redistribution because it was around about 1.3. But the range might have been from 0.2 up to 3 or something like that. So in a few of those cases, there was postmortem redistribution. Just on average, there didn't yeah. seem to be. And it, it makes sense. When you look at THC as a molecule, it's so fat-soluble, you would think it would definitely be prone to postmortem redistribution. And I mean, in my experience, you know, you get some cases which are heavily decomposed or where there's been a long postmortem interval. And sometimes you see really high concentrations of THC and you think that can't have been the concentration before death. That must be increasing after death, leaching back out of the fat and tissues and that kind of thing. And I think this is what that paper shows. For example, they have a femoral sample, a cardiac sample and a subclavian sample. So for example, there might be 38, central is 146 and then subclavian's 83. So mm-hmm. that's two, a huge difference. Two sort of peripheral samples uh, differ by a factor of two. So that shows there can be intri- increases from central to peripheral as well as the other way around it sometimes. So it depends on the individual case. So part B was about looking at three different time points, concentration of THC in blood in three different time points. And in this particular facility, they take when a blood comes into the mortuary, they call it an admission sample in the paper, they take a femoral stab and they, then they analyse that for drugs to see whether they need to do any further work. So that might the results of that femoral stab plus a CT scan might preclude the need for an autopsy. But a subset of these also had antemortem, so they had a sample taken in hospital, sample taken an admission to the mortuary and a sample taken at post-mortem before post-mortem was done. So there were a series of cases where you've got three separate time points, before death, admission to the mortuary and at post-mortem. And the time difference between admission to the mortuary and post-mortem was up to a few days, I think. So the interesting thing here for me was that there appeared to be a median increase between the hospital admission to mortuary admission. So after death, the concentration increased from three to four times, but for some of those samples, it was like a 10 times increase. And also for some of the samples, it went from not detected in the antemortem up to positive results, so up to 11 nanograms per mil. Now, I'm not sure that everyone is unequivocal when they interpret postmortem THC concentrations. Yeah, you shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah, but nonetheless, it just demonstrates that it is very uncertain, so that especially in the cases where this might matter, might be in a workplace accident where there's a bit of THC detected in postmortem blood. Does that mean the person was, did they have THC in their system actively when they passed away? Yeah, it's certainly suggestive of that if you put it on the report, the postmortem report, that there was THC even at a low level of, you know, five or something, five nanograms per mil. But then there's another spanner in the works because then they have a look at the postmortem samples. This is the third time point. And generally, there was a decrease between the admission sample into the mortuary and the postmortem sample. So it goes down again. Yeah, that's so weird because the way we typically think about postmortem redistribution is that the concentrations normally will increase in the blood after death and you tend to think of them as just increasing and increasing until they reach an equilibrium. But this one just seemed to be going up and then it seemed to be going down again. 
So it sort of is redistributing, it increases and then it sort of maybe it equilibrates into the body again. One explanation that they give for this redistribution is that you can have high concentrations of THC in the lung tissue. So you may get distribution from the lungs into the blood following death and then it further equilibrates into the surrounding tissues and so you get some of the THC being absorbed further into the tissues and right. perhaps that's why it has this up and down kind of thing. But it's obviously a very complex situation. It also could be compounded. A lot of the drugs that we look at are higher concentration drugs like um, you know, in the several mg per litre range. These are in the micrograms per litre, nanograms per mil range. So maybe just such tiny concentrations are more susceptible to changes. Fentanyl is another example, I think, which can redistribute wildly as well. So I guess it really just shows once again how careful you have to be with um, relying on a single time point for post-mortem toxicology. I mean, you can have an anti-mortem sample. You can be fairly confident that's, that's going to be correct. But once it gets past death, you're never really sure what's going on because the concentration that you get post-mortem compared to anti-mortem might be higher or lower depending on when the sample was taken. There's no reliable pattern, and you probably don't know where you are on that graph of going up and down, just one single time point. Yeah. And this is where, you know, all this talk about NPS, interpreting levels of NPS is very difficult in post-mortem samples because of these types of issues. And some of these synthetic cannabinoids that come out, and they, they mention this, I think, in their conclusion, some of these are also very lipophilic, and so they may do similar things. And we have reports coming out of, you know, various levels that have been found in postmortem cases. And it's really hard to interpret them because not only do we not have much information about these syncans, but also they could be undergoing exactly the same kind of effect. We don't know which time point we've got them at, which place in the equilibrium they're at. Yeah, that's a good point. So this next paper is fatal pyrrolizidine alkaloid poisonings of infants caused by adulterated Senecio coronatus. Pyrrolizidine. 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 Sound like I should take that app. <laughs> the impairment app. Maybe that should be, instead of doing the app, they should just try and make you say pyrrolizidine. And it's by Van Schalkwick et al. And it's in Forensic Science International. So this is a bit different from some of the papers that we might normally talk about. It's not, it's not a tox paper in the sense that they're measuring blood concentrations of things. But apparently in southern Africa, there's a plant, which is this Senecio genus, which is used in traditional medicines for a bunch of different things. They've got a picture of it here in the paper. It's kind of a hairy looking plant with long roots. It reminds me a bit of an agapantha, Pete, those roots. Yep. That's another South African plant, I think. I was moving some of those on the weekend. (laughs) African daisies as well are a a part of the genus of Senecio, a troublesome weed. I wouldn't eat that. Yeah, well, as they say here, I mean, the whole point of this article is some of the species of Senecio have toxic alkaloids, which are these pyrrolizidines, which are very dangerous to humans, both acutely and chronically. If you're taking small doses over a long period of time, they can accumulate. have effects there as well. I don't know about accumulate, but they can just have chronic effects, okay. I suppose. And there have been some reports apparently of child deaths from the use of these Senecio plants, especially the coronatus, which is the one that's commonly used. But the problem is some of the species look quite similar. So even though traditional medicine practitioners who know what they're doing, who are quite experienced, may be able to pick the right plants, maybe some people who are a bit less experienced won't. And so they were trying to see in this study, 
is it these Senecio coronatus, which are commonly used, which are causing these sickness and deaths in some rare cases, or is it some other plant that's being confused with these and being used? So they had some samples from a, a hospital where these deaths occurred. So they were aiming to see if these, if the Senecio coronatus was really responsible and to assess the levels of these alkaloids in that species, but in a bunch of other species from this genus as well. So they looked at a couple of different parts of the plants, the rhizome and the roots, which I guess are the bits that are used in this traditional medicine, ground it up, extracted it, and looked at nine different alkaloids. So for the qualitative work to confirm the identities of these alkaloids, they used a LCQTOF. And then for the quantitative part, once they'd found it, they wanted to quantitate, they used a triple quadrupole, LC triple quadrupole. And they didn't actually detect them in most of the plants that they used. One species they did detect a couple of the alkaloids, but not in the coronatus, which was the main focus. So that's the authentic coronatus. Yeah. yeah. In one of the species, though, they did find retrocine anoxide, quite a high concentration of it. And so you can imagine if that species was mistaken for the coronatus, even if you know you grab a whole bunch of plants and you've got some coronatus and you've got some of these other species, if some of those have these alkaloids in them, it's, you're going to end up with quite a toxic mixture at the end of it. Yeah, so we're talking you know, hundreds of milligrams per kilo, 1,000 milligrams per kilo, which is quite a high concentration for a toxic alkaloid. When they were doing their analysis, they used herbal tea as a blank matrix. Yeah, so with these kind of studies, sometimes it's hard to get blank matrix or they probably didn't know beforehand which ones were going to contain these alkaloids, so you don't want to use a blank matrix that may contain a lot of these alkaloids. So they use herbal tea as a blank matrix, which is not exactly the same, but it's a very complex plant-based matrix, just like these are, I suppose. So they were kind of suggesting that that would be a worst-case scenario. Yeah, because it's highly phenolic mm. and would act as a good matrix replicant. They also said there was a limitation in the num amount of material that they had. But they did do recoveries in the uh, Sodecchio matrix as well to compare it, and it seemed to compare quite well to the herbal tea matrix in terms of the recovery. It's suitable for what they wanted to do, so that's what you do. So the conclusion was that these infant fatalities weren't caused by the Senecio coronatus, but by another species of Senecio, most likely, which has been confused with the coronatus during the preparation of these medicines. And that's just based on the fact that they couldn't find it in authentic Senecio coronatus. Yeah. But it was in the sample that was presented to the hospital. I thought this paper was really interesting. Mostly when we're talking about forensic toxicology, we're focusing on drugs. But plant-based toxins are also part of um, what people expect us to be finding. If someone's been poisoned, you know, people expect a toxicologist to be able to find that. We can't always. We're not looking for these alkaloids no. for sure. But, but you should be able to. You guys look for everything, don't you? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. But I guess it's, it's region-specific, you know. So some regions... Obviously, this is a, an African plant, so mm. you don't necessarily need to look for these things everywhere. But there will be things in your region, wherever you are. You know, we've talked about ayahuasca before, and there's various things. Carver is another one, which is you know region specific. Yeah, um, you should be able to look for these things in your lab if they're common in your area and potentially causing deaths. Okay, the last paper is from a group in Scotland. It's by Norman et al. And it's titled Large Scale Evaluation of Iron Mobility Spectrometry for the Rapid Detection of Synthetic Cannabinoid Receptor Agonists in Infused Papers in Prisons. And uh, this is in Drug Testing and Analysis. 
So this is kind of looking at a, a rapid screening technique, I guess, for these synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists in paper because apparently one way of smuggling, maybe the way of smuggling these compounds into prisons is to send them by mail. Because the synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists, or SCRAs, are so potent, you just need a very, very tiny concentration. So it's pretty easy to impregnate some paper, a particular region of a bit of paper, write a letter on it, and then send it to someone. But you might think, well, why don't they just photocopy every letter that comes into the jail? But that's an issue because by law they're not really allowed to open up mail if they, unless they have a, a good reason to. So I guess this manner of screening is to to see whether there is a valid reason for opening up mail and checking it. Yeah, maybe they should only allow email, Pete. Maybe. <laughs> Sometimes people just like to write a letter. Sure, sure. And, you know, the wide variety of structures within this synthetic cannabinoid class makes it quite difficult to have a preliminary test. You know, there's been colour tests that have been proposed and all of these things have their pros and cons. But here they're assessing a couple of devices using iron mobility spectrometry, which uh, seem to be quite promising. These are the gadgets that they use in airports, of course, where they give you a swab and then they chuck it into this box that suddenly gives you a result of negative, hopefully, unless you've been in the illicit drugs lab just before coming <laughs> to the airport. You've got to be careful. Always a risk in our job. <laughs> and because this group has been working on this um, for a while, they've previously established some of the common synthetic cannabinoids in the prisons and that are quite prevalent in the UK. So they're testing two different devices here. They're both from the same manufacturer, RapiScan. And the way they work is that you place the, the analytes into an ionization chamber where they're volatilized, ionized, and then they're separated based on iron mobility, which I guess you, I kind of think of it like chromatography. I mean, it's not working in the same mechanism, you but know. There is a, a retention time. Yeah, there is a separation between them based on their ionic properties. But we're talking milliseconds here. It's not like yeah. a minutes for a chromatographic run. It's a run. quick screen. It's the time for these from when you press go to when it's finished is in the order of 5 to 20 milliseconds. Yeah, it's then a you, very rapid thing. And so you've got like a window for each um, compound that you're monitoring of where it might come out, like a retention time. You know, It's a similar kind of principle, just yeah. working on a different mechanism. And they call it, a, instead of a chromatogram, they call it a plasmogram. And, you know, if we continue this analogy of um, chromatograms, it is like a chromatogram in that it gives you a retention time, but, of course, that's not a specific identification of that compound. There could be other things that come out at that same time. And so it's similar to that. You know, you can get a positive. It doesn't necessarily mean it's that compound, but it could mean that it's another compound which is structurally related somehow, quite similar. It, it may mean that. It may not mean that. but It gives a reason to do further testing on it. Yeah, that's right. And actually, this is one of the advantages um, that they mention here is that new synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists are coming out all the time. People just change, you know, one little thing on the molecule and now it's a new one that can't be detected necessarily on a, an LCMS screen, for example. But here, maybe it would be detected because if it's similar enough in its ionic properties, it may still give a flag at that time. Yeah, so it's a little bit like ELISA sometimes. It's less specific, but that's okay because it can pick up or flag compounds that you can't detect with more specific methods. And so they're comparing these two instruments. They're called the 3E and the 4DN. They seem to be quite similar, but one has a photoionization at the start and one's chemical ionization. And then there's a bit of a difference in the processing side of it as well. One's using a more complex algorithm and the other one's really just going by 
you know, the time and then it's got a signal to noise threshold. And they're comparing both of these instruments to an analysis, a more traditional analysis by GCMS and LCMS. They had about 400 samples to test, so they got a pretty decent comparison. So they had a GCMS and they also used a QTOF and actually it was a QTOF that was set up with a photodiode array. So I imagine what they mean by this is that you've got the LC and the eluents coming out of the LC. It's going through a flow path which Mm. measures the UV spectra and then it goes into the mass spectrometer. And so you end up with both a UV spectra and a mass spectrometer. And this is a really neat way of analyzing things. I mean, because UV spectra can tell you some things that mass spectra can't. You know, sometimes you can see relations between different compounds based on the UV spectra that aren't really clear with a mass spectra. Some isomers can be discriminated as well. Yep. And if you're quantifying things, which they, they weren't really doing that here, but if you do want to quantify things, the UV might have a much greater linear range than the mass spec. Yeah. So right. that it can be a good way to do that as well. Although you've got to be careful that your flow path in the UV part doesn't expand your peaks too much. You can get micro cells, I think, that minimize the amount of dispersion that you get of your peaks. Yeah, so you still get a nice uh, sharp peak going into your MS. Anyway, that's not the focus of the paper. No, that was just something I thought was really interesting. So they look for a bunch of different substances. They say they can't um, disclose all of them for security reasons, which makes sense. And these instruments performed quite well. Over a 90% hit rate, I think. Is that right? Maybe yeah. Better. Agreement between the, the instruments and the GCMS was about 95%, I think, for both instruments. They both seem to perform you know, pretty similarly to each other. They get the libraries for these SIM cans from the manufacturer as well as their own that they put in there, so, as I understood it. And you can get false positives sometimes. They had an example where 5FQ mile pegaclone gave an alarm. They talk about these alarms, spice alarm, which is basically means a positive result, where 5FQ mile pegaclone alarmed for tramadol. And a couple of the compounds seem to have high variability in the drift time. So that's like, you know, when you get retention time shifting, I guess, is that kind of thing. I wonder if that's relating to the size of the molecule and how readily it gets volatilized. Well, it does seem to be compound specific and... They suggest it could be breakdown happening during ionization or maybe you're getting adducts forming and so they're sort of moving at different speeds through that drift tube. It's like chromatography, but it's a bit foreign to me. But it's basically in the gas phase, chromatography going against a a gas going the other way, isn't it? The ions are floating up this electric field against a gas. So the bigger the molecule, the slower it goes. Yeah, I guess it's probably more complex than that. No. (laughs) And it is only a qualitative method. You, you never know exactly how much you're actually getting on to be ionized. Um, but they did try and establish whether they can detect concentrations that they found in their previous work. They tested a whole bunch of real samples. And the instruments definitely seem to be very sensitive. In fact, maybe they're too sensitive in some cases. You can even pick up like cross-contamination between samples and things like that. They mentioned that they found very low concentrations on some bits of paper, but they reckon that's because of being in contact with positive pieces. Mm. And the the reason that's not so great for quantitation is because you do get saturation, just like in an LCMS, you can get saturation at the ionization part and also at the detector part. So you get the, these quadratic curves happening. And they actually found a couple of new ones, a new synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonist, which they didn't have reference standards for, but they did were able to presumptively identify them by those other methods, GCMS and LCMS. Yeah, so it seems like a really promising technique. They do mention that good training 
is important because you you do get some of these borderline positive results. And so you need someone who's actually trained to be able to pick that up and maybe flag those ones for further testing, even though they're not they're not giving a specific alarm. So there's a little bit of discretion there required by the analyst. Yeah, like with pretty yeah. much any of these preliminary tests. And they, they finish off the article with a really interesting closing comment that although reducing supply does reduce harm, which is obviously the aim here to reduce supply, to detect these things before they get into prisons, that does reduce harm. But it's not possible to say what other outcomes might arise from that, like alternate smuggling methods and maybe some of these things have greater risks depending on how they're consumed and so on. I like seeing this kind of thoughtful comment in a paper. I mean, it's not within the scope of their study, but it's just uh, some good big picture thinking, I reckon. They also conclude with a few points that include that really need to be sharing data, which is quite obvious when you think about it, but it's a point that some people don't take on. Sharing data is very important. Yeah. And they also recommend that the screening be done in conjunction with normal prison drug monitoring. So I guess that's urine samples and things like that because that's a good place to detect new drugs that are coming out as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, we hope you enjoyed that 5 and 30. Another episode up next week. Email us at toxpod at tf.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.